0: Welcome to the Big Ed Idea Podcast, a podcast for those looking to change the world through education. Each week, we bring you a new idea, however big or bold it is, that has the potential to disrupt, upheave, or remix education. Now here's your host, our dad, Ryan Scott. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 1 of the Big Ed Idea Podcast. Um, It goes without saying, but this is absolutely crazy nuts that um, the Big Ed Idea Podcast is back for season two. Um, This whole thing just started with, honestly, this just started with an idea, and I took the good, uh, I took the advice of a good friend and I just did it, and it's so cool that here we are, Starting off season two, um, I tell you, selfishly, I look for guests, and I try to plug those guests in very specific spots um, of this podcast, and so when I came across this next gentleman several months ago, I knew uh, when I heard him that this had to be the first episode of season two, because... Season one was all about getting a lot of these big Ed ideas out there. Um, You know, we all have great ideas, but sometimes it's hard to get those ideas into action. And so I'm super excited to welcome a guy today that kind of has some ideas of how we can get things actually rolling when we have that idea. And so without further ado, I'm going to welcome Dr. John B. Nash. He is a husband, he is a dad in a blended family of six, he is the director of grad studies and an associate professor of ed leadership studies at the University of Kentucky. And he is an author of Design Thinking in Schools, a leader's guide to collaborating for improvement. And so without further ado, Dr. John, thank you for being on the Big Ed Idea podcast. Hey,
1: Ryan, thank you so much. I'm looking forward to a great conversation.
0: So um, do you normally, do you go by Dr. John? Do you go by John? Do you go by Dr. Nash? What what do most people call you?
1: I'm, uh, I'm pretty relaxed about the whole thing. I'm, I, uh, I just go by John. Perfect. I remember the first time after I got my first job as a as an assistant professor and I called a, a district because I was late or something and I, I used my title for the first time and I still remember that I've, I was like <laughs> weirded out about it. <laughs> that was years and years and years ago. So yeah, John, John is good.
0: You know, I would imagine. Um, I would imagine that would be really weird. I know one of my goals is to get my doctorate as well. And, um, you know, I'll be Dr. Scott, which every time I say it, I'm just going to think about like, uh, Star Trek. So there you go. All right, my friend. So, um, first off again, I just want to thank you for being on the big eight idea podcast. I had the pleasure of listening to you. Um, our school is involved in next gen leadership cohort out of um, the University of Kentucky, and and they invited you to be a sp- speaker, I think, maybe three months ago, and I um, mm-hmm. loved your presentation. I knew I needed to get you. Actually, I had to get you on the podcast, so thank you for agreeing to do this on a Sunday evening.
1: Well, thanks for inviting me. So, it's a, it's a, yeah, I'm excited.
0: All right, man. So, um, first thing we always like to do is kind of just let's just find out what's going on at your house, what's going on at my house, and, and then we'll go. Um, and so, as I record this, um, it is the middle of December. It's almost Christmas. Um, This episode actually won't drop until January. Um, But as of right now at my house, um, this weekend has been all things Christmas. We went up to my parents' house, which is in beautiful Santa Claus, Indiana, um, which obviously is Very Christmas themed all the time. So we um, went up there, went to this place called Candy Castle with my daughters, and then we went and saw Santa. Um, And then today, my wife and I did um, probably one of the things that I dislike the most, and that is shopping. We had to go to um, the city, and we did some shopping for the girls and for the kids, and that ended up being like a six-hour marathon not the not the most fun but you know you you gotta do what you gotta do so That's dr right. john what is going on at your house this weekend
1: oh this weekend this weekend has been um actually uh well your people affiliated with school systems know that friday was pretty much the last day of school for a lot amen. of
0: amen yes
1: and it was so also for uh, the university so uh i attended commencement on friday morning and got to see uh, a couple of my doctoral students walk across the stage with me and i was honored to be able to put the doctoral hood over them and
0: Absolutely.
1: Um, just yeah that feels really good to see the end of that uh, journey and new new doors open up for them as they go through that and then uh saturday and, and today has just been uh, my my wife and i was also a professor we're realizing that the semester has come to an end and we've actually reclaimed some of our time. so we saw one of the granddaughters last night and then we've been making just plans for how the the week's going to unfold as we roll into saturday for the 25th
0: so. yeah i don't know you know i don't know what it's like up in higher academia but i know the folks here at the at the uh, secondary level high school level uh, we needed this break and I'll tell you um, I'm recording this podcast and I'm doing nothing else educationally related until the new year like I'm taking the next two weeks off and I'm just checking out
1: well you're also I mean for all folks I'm in uh, Fayette County uh, it's middle of the state but you're in western Kentucky we're a week out of that devastation and Oh, yeah. There's counties out there. You're safe, I take it, and your uh, your your students and your family's safe. But it's um, the the wake of that still you know, on everybody's
0: mind. You know, we uh, actually we so where I teach, I teach about 30 minutes south of where I live, but the school is about 30 minutes north of where, like Dawson Springs area, that was completely right. leveled. Um, one of my teachers, he actually lost seven members of his family um we had several teachers yeah i know we had several teachers whose families lost everything um another one of our teachers lost a really good friend so yeah it is it has directly affected our school community and so yeah these next two weeks um it's going to be it's going to be good for us mentally um physically spiritually all of that kind of stuff so yep so um i tell you one of the things that And I and I would gather you probably believe the same thing, but I'm a true believer in connections before content. And so I try to model that on this podcast um, just to find out a little bit more about who John is. You get to find out who Ryan is and then it just makes for a better conversation. So this next thing that I'd like to do, I've got two questions going to ask and just to try to dig down to who John is. Um, outside of academia. So, John, my first question, do you have a morning routine at work?
1: Yeah, I think I do. I think I do. That's funny. Um, And as an educator, you know, too, but it's different maybe in higher ed, but it's a different stripe of, uh, but the pandemic has created different routines. So uh, when you started to say morning routine, I had it nailed. And then you said at work. I said, well, wait, where do I go to work? And uh, I'm, I'm sitting in where I go to work every day. Um, I don't want to plug any uh, company's particular um, uh, smart device, but I have one here on my desk They're made by a company that begins with the letter A. And I ask it once in a while how many days it's been since Mar- uh, March 13th, 2020, which was the Friday, the 13th, we all went into lockdown. Yeah, that's right. And that voice comes back and I checked it a couple of days. It's like 647 days, wow. uh, something wow. like this crazy. So, um, what, you know, my routine? Well, I, yeah, I usually, uh, I have a routine. I, I hit the kitchen after getting up and getting dressed. Uh, I've already had a coffee, but I'll usually, I will make lately. I've been making a, uh, I make a tea in this, uh, uh a, a tea mug that i have from uh cost uh, from uh, world market It's an infuser and i put a a tazo energizer tea in there and one go. splenda and i pour some hot water over that and i walk that out to the backyard because my office is above a garage oh cool um, and um i'll i'll stick it on this uh, hot plate here to keep it hot while i sip it and then i, I begin my day So that's kind of the routine I can have
0: lately. Okay. Yeah. The older I get, the more like I need my routines to stay sane. Um, My routine, we uh, went back full time. Well, the beginning of the year, just full time. So we've been in the building pretty much all all year. Um, Mm -hmm. But I get to school every morning by 530. Um, I do a morning workout. Then I get dressed at school and it's it's funny how routine i am i walk in my office turn on my speaker sit down plug my phone in turn on some music whatever i'm feeling that day which lately has been um lately has been avid brothers or um some type of folk folksy stuff um Mm -hmm. and then i sit down start answering emails and Yep. That's my, that's my morning routine.
1: Yeah. Well, actually, now that you mentioned it prior to having that tea and after the first coffee, my wife and I do hit the road. We, we walk about four kilometers every morning through uh, a neighborhood here in Lexington. Excellent. Uh, And so that's kept us, we call that our um, mental and health time. Sanity time. Uh
0: Okay. My friend, John, what is a hobby that you could easily turn into a side gig?
1: Oh, my. Well, uh, since uh, I just thought of this the other day, since about, I don't know, around the fall of 2019, I've been because a and that coffee that I have every morning is actually an espresso. It's like a cappuccino we have every morning because of a a cappuccino machine that made it into the house. Um, I've been baking biscotti. Ooh. Uh, and because then we have a biscotti and a and a, and a cappuccino every morning, uh because we dip it in there and it's delicious. And I haven't stopped making it because we just can't stand not having it. And then this just yesterday, actually, you said what I did for the weekend. I did. I I cooked four batches, four four batches of biscotti that we're sending out as gifts this year. And it's a, this was a pistachio cranberry biscotti um and it's pretty tasty i had it today it sounds very um, tasty now i'm not saying i'm going to become a baker but it is something that's like i play a little guitar now i can't be a musician like, what else <laughs> I, do? like I, I sit on the computer all day i'm not going to be a computer guy but you know maybe maybe one day I, yeah have i could bake biscotti for a living i don't know There you, go. Yeah. you could
0: be a barista and have biscottis there you go sounds great all right my friend what questions do you have for me
1: that's good um so what's the most unusual thing you've ever eaten?
0: Most unusual thing I have ever eaten. I so didn't I, listen
1: to all 50 episodes. I was worried you got asked that already. No, no, you haven't.
0: Um, <laughs> so so probably the weirdest thing that I've ever eaten was escargot, um, which was absolutely gross. Like I can eat pretty much anything. There's not really anything I don't like. Um, I love sushi. I love raw stuff. <laughs> But, man, Ooh. escargot was <laughs>
1: I've never had that. Um, I, had, I had the good fortune to travel overseas some uh, in the last 10 years, and was particularly with another colleague of mine who used to be at UK. He's now at the University of Denver, um, Jason Richardson. You might Maybe you've run across him. I don't know. But um, we kind of had a little contest to see who could eat weird stuff. But when we were in China <laughs> – uh we ate i ate i ate a scorpion it was cooked oh, wow. to me by a guy
0: and it just and tastes it's really like cool
1: crunchy something or other yeah but dang. yeah um let's see uh and then you know what i was thinking is that uh, what i value more as i get older although even when you're younger too but is good sleep i mean just sleeping well just seems really important and and then i thought about well, how do we all have these our, our sleep routines configured and things like this? And I ran across this question, and I thought this is fits, but I'm curious. Um, so, Ryan, how many pillows do you sleep with?
0: Oh, two. Two. I've got two. to have a, a really soft one and then a really hard one. Like, the really hard one is the base layer, and then the soft one is the top layer. Um, my wife, okay, so... I'm going to get personal. My wife has said that I have started snoring and I don't know why I haven't gained any weight. It could be the pillows. Who knows? Could just be the company I keep. I don't know.
1: Yeah. So do they, these, these pillows, they serve a purpose. Then you have one does one thing and one does the other.
0: Absolutely. Very functional.
1: Um, Why do you put the soft one? You said, wait, the hard one goes down first. Yep. Yep the soft one. That's yep. interesting. I have two. I think I do it a little bit different. I have the sort of the down pillow is underneath the more sort of I have this cool pillow that's sort of chopped foam filled. And that one seemed that one, but that one stays cold. I love to flip it. Cause don't you love it? Yeah. Oh, for the real. Part yes. Part yes. On the face. yes. Yeah. So, yeah. So yeah, I don't know. Good. Yeah. Good to know.
0: All right, man. So now, uh, John, that I know, a little bit more about you. You know a little bit more about me. Um, now let's start digging into the meat. Um, let's start getting into this education space because I know you know quite a bit about it um, and, and I'm super excited to kind of get to you know the idea tonight and so before we do that though um, everybody so this past week Friday night I took two of my high school students. Um, I took them out to eat um, I always make this deal with some of our high school kids that other people don't think are going to graduate. And so I always talk to these kids and I always tell them, hey, when you are done, I will take you out for Chinese food. And so this particular kid got through all of his graduation requirements um, this past week. And so to celebrate, we went Nate Chinese and then we went and watched the new Spider Man. Um, and so it, it got me thinking t- about origin stories. Okay. I'm a big, big Marvel guy. Um, I'm a big superhero guy. Um, and so everybody's got watched an- the
1: Ten rings.
0: Yeah. Saw- that, that was cry. really good. Yeah. That was yeah, really good. That. that was yeah. really good. Um, so everybody's got an origin story. Um, people that have listened to this podcast, you know, maybe you've heard my origin story. Um, Definitely not a linear line to education. So I'm really interested in how, how did John Nash get into education? It's a
1: great question. I think, well, you know, my, my bachelor's degree is in developmental psych. Oh, wow. Um, I, I was always interested in. I was interested in psychology i was interested in, interested in kids and how and through human humans how humans develop um but i didn't i didn't train to become a teacher so it's kind of i guess i have a circuitous path to educational yeah. leadership it's like how dare you uh, prepare <laughs> school principals when you you know but uh, but i've been in the school system and then um i i actually entered this sort of being in schools through special education, and I was a non-certified instructor in the Salt Lake City School District in a severely multiply handicapped classroom, uh, both uh, middle school and elementary school, and and through that I became really interested in special ed, and I went and I did a master's degree in special ed, uh, focusing on school to work transition for yeah. students with special needs. Um. And it was out of that that I started to think about what I wanted to do, uh, and I had good mentors in that program, and they said, you should go go pursue a doctorate. And it was either going to be in educa- educational leadership or it was probably going to be in special ed. And I took an ed leadership route um, and uh, went to the University of Wisconsin and got my PhD there. And then... and. <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's interesting how pathways just sort of evolve. but um, because I had a, a non-traditional route through education and I hadn't been certified to be a principal, I didn't really have a superintendent route available to me through a doctorate. So um, my professors looked at me and said, well, you're you're qualified to go be a professor. <laughs> and so and um, almost I, you know, so so I did. And uh, I've, I've been doing that. I was at the I was a, an assistant professor at the University of Texas El Paso. I lived on the U.S.-Mexico border for six years, um, taught there, worked through Mexico and in the and on the borderlands, and fascinating time and a great okay. enriching time to be thinking about uh, schools and education. And then um, uh, I uh, I left uh, that work to go back home. I'm from uh, I'm from the Bay Area, San Francisco Bay Area, and uh, I grew up. Uh, I was born in Palo Alto and grew up in that area. So I got a job at Stanford University as a research, social research scientist uh, directing, helping direct a lab called the Stanford Learning Lab, looking at ways to integrate technology into, um, into the undergraduate curriculum at Stanford. Um, and interestingly enough, the, uh, this ties to my current work. My, 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 my bosses there were um, uh, Larry Freelander, Larry Leifer, and Sherry Shepherd, and um, Larry Leifer, was one of the uh, future co-founders of the d school at stanford and so basically working there for six years i got a sort of an informal master's in design thinking and learned all about the way that uh that kind of thinking goes um that influenced me when i came back into uh into uh, professor world Uh, i was at uh, iowa state university with scott mcleod and uh, it was then that i started to think about ways in which um, design thinking could be brought to bear to think about uh, how leaders could use that as a lens for their own work it's kind of interesting when you think about the uh, the pathway of how design thinking has become popular in certain circles it's it emanates from a, a history of around engineering and product design but then as the d school was founded and it became popular to think about it in other circles, such as uh, in the developing world and thinking about ways to solve problems in society. Um, it creeps into uh, and rightfully so into uh, in p12 education, thinking about how kids should be more like design thinkers and the maker movement is sort of a sister movement uh-huh. to this that keeps going. Um, and then teachers, they themselves could be design thinkers. And interestingly enough, uh, left to the side of the road are leaders and it just sort of struck us and the work i was doing with scott mcleod and then eventually with justin Bathon and jason richardson with the group castle the center for advanced study of technology leadership in education which is now out of the um, down in, in colorado um the the saying there at that time was uh, if the leaders don't get it then nobody will sure and that was the feeling about tech and kind of, kind of still is, he said, he said on the, <laughs> out of the side of his mouth. Um, but that was the, the, I thought the opportunity was there, that, that design thinking had penetrated many of the levels of education, but no one was talking about how leaders could be themselves design thinkers, how they could think like designers. And if they could do that, then they might be able to leverage the wisdom of the crowds around them to create the change that we want to see in education.
0: Excellent. So I've got a couple connections with your story. Um El Paso. I have a couple, couple guys that I've connected through Twitter. Um Josh Tovar, who was a principal down um down there. And now he's in Garland ISD. But then there's another gentleman named Ricky Ramirez, who worked at a high school in El Paso. He's a motivational speaker now out of that area. Um so I know both of those guys from the Twitter world mm-hmm. through the El Paso area. Um, so okay, okay. So obviously you've been in education now for a little little bit. You've seen some of the ebbs and flows in education. And um, what do you see as kind of the problem in education that your idea kind of hopes to attack or or alleviate or you know, lessen? I guess. Yeah.
1: I think there's probably a couple of of lenses for this but i mean the one i one i like to start with is um I'll, i'll i'll call out my own my own work and my own colleagues work and our our respective work i suppose a little bit but in the way we tend to train educational leaders in the united states is through graduate programs at universities and colleges and students who want to pursue that work tend to be teachers who want to move up through the ranks and they'll get a master's degree and maybe become a principal and then um, if they get go further than that, that's fine. But and that curriculum goes through the typical sorts of things that we think those kinds of leaders ought to know with uh, curriculum, teaching and learning, uh, supervision of instruction, um, legal aspects, personnel. And we cobble this curriculum together with good meaning and good intentions and good intentions yes absolutely and then and we um graduate them kick them out and we say go lead (laughs) and what we don't tend to do is uh really advise those candidates on how they could um do that leadership right uh and and do it with the people that are purportedly under their charge, and and I use that word under, ill-advisedly. I, sure. I'd rather say you know with their butt. Um, yeah. So I think that that's I think that's the one of the that's one of the problems, um, and that I, so I think one of the ways we've been trying to tackle this at the University of Kentucky and with my own work uh, in the past few years is to think about ways to take this opportunity of design thinking and turn it into a, a tool set that leaders can use to better affect the change and the agendas that those they 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 and their community want to make happen in their schools
0: okay so obviously uh john your big idea revolves around this idea of design thinking um there, there may be some folks out there that are just not sure exactly what design thinking is. Do you mind to give us just a, a quick synopsis of, of what design thinking is and then get into the, get into the meat. How does design thinking going to help Ed? Sure.
1: So, um, <clears throat> design thinking is a, also a synonym for another term called human centered design. Uh, and in, in lieu of calling it a, uh, problem solving process I like to think of it as a solution finding process oh yeah and the so because um we've got plenty of problems in the world uh but not (laughs) enough solutions uh and what design thinking does is it it explicitly involves the people that are most affected by a particular problem or issue and keeps them As close to you as possible in thinking about the ways in which you can create solutions to that problem. So um, I'll start with a very simple uh, idea and then I'll take it to school. So um, many parents of young children may be familiar with the, the toothbrush that's out there that has the very squishy handles that lets a kid more easily grip it when they learn to brush their teeth. I'm holding a pen in my hand now, but you know, a a typical toothbrush with a very thin handle is hard for a little little kid's hand to hold. So, they make these squishy ones. Those were uh, actually designed by the industrial design firm IDEO. Many people have heard of IDEO doing other things too, but uh, through design thinking, which is that they went and they watched kids brush their teeth. They found out what they did wrong and right with toothbrushes, and then they stuck different kinds of toothbrushes in those kids' hands. Prototypes. until it worked, and then they said, "Okay, let's sell this. And so um, they kept the kids close to them to design this thing. It wasn't just some people up in a lab saying, hey, we should do this. They never, in fact, that never could have happened if they hadn't had the kids close to them to do that sort of work. Well, the same sort of thing, I think, can work in in education. And the the process of educating students is one that leaves out the people who are most affected by that issue, the students, right. in the design and running of that. So, what design thinking does is it, it offers a, a, a process. That's what I sort of outline in my book. It offers a process for leaders to think about the ways they can involve the people who don't generally have a seat at the table, have a say that can be actually very effective in making change that can stick. So you said, so the process is basically um, thinking about an issue that might be at hand um, and then working to do what we call need finding or empathy to uh, interview, understand, observe uh, the problem that's happening with those people that it's affecting. Um, And then after that that phase of observation, uh, coming to a place where you can start to think about what the real problem is you want to try to solve. And then uh, enter into a phase of brainstorming to look for fresh ideas to attack that problem. And then uh, selecting, or we say harvest that brainstorm for one or two promising ideas that we prototype, and that we make uh, uh, real in a very quick way so we can show it back to those folks and say, hey, was this, does this work? and they give feedback and they say, yes, this part works, this part doesn't. And we iterate and we go, okay, we'll fix that. We'll keep this, we'll turn this up, we'll turn this down. And then we get it out there. A lot of teachers I work with that uh, start to think about this can imagine, maybe you can too, there's, um, can you imagine a time when in your school where perhaps a a curriculum or a policy was put forth and it, it fell flat because no one ever looked at it or tried it or tested it before it went out? That's a prime example where... That, that never, come on release. now, John.
0: That so, never happens in education. You know, <laughs> you
1: know, everything's perfect the first time out yeah. of the box.
0: Don't know about that.
1: So um, the idea is that it gives you a safe space to, um, what do we say, fail fast to succeed sooner. So get- uh, if we can get something out there where it's, uh, it doesn't cost me anything to, to wreck it before it gets live... We save time, money, people,
0: what have you. That's exactly right. Um, I'm a big, uh, I've been listening to quite a bit of Brene Brown's podcasts lately, Dare Lead. And um, she, she made a comment that we spend too much time on the problem. No, no, too much time on the solution and not enough time sometimes on the problem. Like what is the actual problem behind it? And and what I'm what I'm hearing you say is that a lot in this process design thinking, you're really getting to the root of before you can find the solution, you got to find the root, and I, and that's what I'm kind of hearing you say.
1: Yes, yeah, you have to uh, you have to understand the unmet needs. Yeah, I mean, they're just as yeah. a host of unmet needs, and what what school leaders tend to do, and and as I mentioned at the outset here, is like uh, preparation programs could be more thoughtful about this. I think is that. Um, they're put into a position where th- when a problem arises the 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 thinking moves to what's already either on the shelf that can be sold to me by a vendor or what the other school district is doing
0: yeah
1: and then we'll just lift that and go and and that's that's fine up to a point but most school districts most schools while they all sort of look the same and have the same physical plan and infrastructure They they're running on all very different unmet needs and each needs its own attention. And so what I'm suggesting actually means a little extra work, but the back end effects are much uh, greater when you put in this effort to really understand what people need and then meet them at that point of need.
0: That's exactly right. I was listening and I can't remember the name of the podcast, but there was a, there was a guest and he was talking and it might've been Charles Williams. Um, he's out of the Chicago area. He runs um, a podcast. I can't remember his name, but he was talking about scalability and how um, an idea that might work really well in my school, um, somebody latches onto that that idea and then tries to scale it to all these other, Schools and and then they wonder why it's not working. Well, what you're saying is the problems that are in that school um, are very unique to that school, and if we don't take the time to, like you're saying, dig down to the root cause of it, um, it can't. I mean, it it just can't be scalable.
1: Right. Or they're just, or they're just unique enough, and this is the problem: is that because you can be lulled into a sense of uh, safety and thinking you can use other solutions because things look on the surface quite similar, but it doesn't take a lot of difference for you to get to a point where you really need to be thoughtful about what your kids need, what your community needs, what their interests are, and then
0: design at that point. Okay. So, do you happen to have maybe, maybe an example of what this might look like? Um, you know, I'm at the high school level. So you know, say we have an issue that has arisen in our high school. Um, maybe, and maybe you have some some ideas that you can pull out of or a bank of ideas. Like like, give me an example of when this might have been used, say, at a high school or at any level really?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, actually, a colleague of mine and I, we just have a chapter out in a new book coming out on design thinking where we, Uh, examined our own efforts to work with a high school to think about redesigning the bell schedule, uh, which is not a trivial.
0: No, not at the high school level. I found that out quickly.
1: uh, Did you really?
0: Well, I spent 12 years in elementary and then I went to be, so from a elementary principal to a high school assistant principal. um, Yeah. Like those bells, that is, people take their bills seriously.
1: Yeah, and so, um, so we were, we worked with a, a high school to think about how the and the the fancy term for this is day pattern, um, mm-hmm. but how, how how you might uh, reorganize the day pattern based upon the needs, the unique needs of this particular high school and these kids and these teachers, um, and so to go about that, you you couldn't you wouldn't dare just start to prototype bell schedules one day and start to see how things go. And so what we did is we had the, uh, the, a group of teachers and educators and parents um, all uh, teamed up with students in the school to go interview all, a lot of other students in the school about, firstly, what their lives are like, what they're trying to achieve, and then, more specifically, what is it about the day pattern and the schedule? When do you get to school? What do you want to study? This particular school at the time didn't have an advisory period, mm-hmm. and they were thinking maybe that was something they were interested in doing. But they didn't know how might that how would that fit in, and when would right. you do it? And so um, after uh, over a hundred interviews were done, uh, students interviewing students, teachers, interviewing students, teachers, interviewing teachers. Um, this, we took this data and put it all out on sticky notes and got it out and looked at it for patterns on where there might be an opportunity to make a difference in the day pattern. Maybe certain classes only needed, um, I don't know, um, 20 minutes, and others probably deserved six, 60 minutes. And so, um, so the students um, who were part of the team uh, actually prototyped using, um, using skits at the site-based decision-making meeting to show what they thought the effects of a good day pattern like would this. do. Yeah. And so yeah. what they did is instead of, because of what's interesting, Ryan, is that when you want to think about doing something really innovative with a school schedule, um, the second you just put something innovative that looks like a school schedule on paper, and it might be the most radical, uh school schedule change you've ever seen in your life at the end of the day it still just looks like a grid on a piece of paper sure. i can't really tell it's how awesome it is from the old one to the new one because it's just it's just and numbers and things. Just, yeah. It's yeah. just numbers and slots and boxes so what the kids did is they were able to imagine with foresight that if we had a day pattern that did these sort of things that we thought would be beneficial and that the teachers agreed they did a skit about what the outcomes would be as a result of behaving like that or having a school year like that with that schedule. They talked about how they love their subjects now and how they were able to get in touch with their teachers. And, they, and this was portrayed in a way that the Site-Based Decision-Making Council could say, oh, we get where you're going with this. Yeah. Um, yeah. We'll let you, we're gonna let you run with this. And so then uh, at this particular school, they were able to actually uh, suspend the bell schedule so a school of, say, 1,500 kids, they took 300 kids, peeled them off, and put them on this prototype schedule and ran it for a day to see what it would be like to have kids move around on these different schedules. And some teachers volunteered to teach their courses differently that day while the other school went about its own business. And no, nobody, there were no bells. And nobody ran away. Nobody died. Nobody, nothing <laughs> bad happened. And the... Uh, the, the school journalism club followed the kids around, did person in the street, interviews in the corridors, how is this going, interviewed them afterwards. And they were able to say at the end of the day, yes, there's parts of this that really work for us and we're going to, we're going to start to do some of this. And the funny thing is, is that after they decided to run with some of this, um, and they actually suspended the bell schedule, this is a public high school in Kentucky that was not, you know, large urban high school. Um, the principal started to get phone calls from other schools in the city and the state, even some some private s- schools, from well-to-do communities, saying, "Hey, w- we want to get rid of bells. How'd you guys yeah. do that? How did you yeah. get rid of bells? We want we want that." And the the answer, a little tongue in cheek, was, "Go interview two hundred kids."
0: Sure. Sure.
1: But but because they you know what they wanted they wanted the off-the-shelf solution.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, Bet they couldn't get it. So the idea here anyway was that yeah, you know, f- solutions that bubbled up from the way kids wanted to learn, the way teachers wanted to teach, they were able to think about ways to reshape the pattern of the school day. You
0: no, know, I what I really what I really like about that is um, it kind of kind of goes into this this idea. We we need our students to be graduating with more critical thinking than ever before. Um, But are we really giving them the opportunities to develop that critical thinking skills? Um, And what I like about this um, design thinking process is, you know, I think we could all sit down and probably come up with 20 problems in our schools. And probably if we sat down and thought of those 20 problems, we would think of 20 solutions. But what I like about this, it flips it on its head and it takes it to the people that the problems actually, you know, um, affect. And so you know, if we get these students at the table, if we get these teachers at the table, lo and behold, if we get our parents at the table and we sit down and we come up with some of these solutions, um I see these solutions, how do I say this other than they just last like like they're they're going to be lasting solutions because people have came up with it, I guess,
1: right. Yeah, it's like the Heath brothers say, it's, it's sticky, right? Yeah, they're, 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 their ideas are a little stickier. Absolutely. The, the other thing that's interesting, and, and maybe it was a part of the, the session that you were in earlier this year, but I've been thinking a lot about ways in which uh, a design thinking approach can be very useful for teachers, even right at the classroom level as they think about what are the unmet needs of the students across their, uh, across their day in all of those sections and all of those periods, because each kid is um, receiving that curriculum at their own pace and speed. It's sort of like the sticky note I had during the pandemic up on my monitors is, you know, everybody's going through something. And um, but we're, we've become a little bit standardized in the way we treat a body sure. of kids, sure. uh, that it's hard to miss that. And so I've been thinking about this idea about there are lots of touch points we say during the day, but these touch points can become ouch points. You drop the T and then all of a sudden, all these things that a kid goes through uh, can be uh, accidental ouch points. And so it's uh, it's important, I think, for us to also think about how we can introduce a little bit more empathy uh, in the daily process, wherein we can learn a little bit more. The more we know about a kid's life um, outside of school, the more we can be sensitive to the way in which they are receiving the instruction that they're that they're that they're getting
0: yeah that touches on a something that i'm really starting to learn about um so for the longest time i always called it learned helplessness and i was convinced that there was a a a silent pandemic in our schools of learned helplessness and i've really started to rephrase that as learned hopelessness um I've really got into this, um, concept of pedagogy before psycho pedago- sorry, psychology before set pedagogy, um, mm-hmm. that sometimes we spend so much time on the content and sometimes on the, um, the standards that we forget about the, the psychology that is absolutely needed for these kids to learn. And I, and I love what you're talking about there, these touch points, um, these are those times during the day where the teachers can interact at a personal level with their students. And what I'm hearing about this design thinking is teachers could do that to try to get increased buy in, increased engagement, um, increased. Um, you know, I know at the high school level, at least at my high school, we're having a slew of kids that just aren't, aren't working. They're not turning in homework. They're not you know we and we say a lot of it is because maybe the maybe the content isn't relevant um or maybe they haven't built a relationship with the teacher yet um right. but what i'm hearing you say is if if a teacher would take this idea of design thinking let's interview those students let's find out why the students aren't turning in the homework and then let's figure out from the students what can we do to increase
1: yeah yeah, there, there's a, uh, an author, Don Norman, he wrote the book called The Psychology of Everyday Things. And he's also done a lot of work on uh, design of just yeah uh, of everyday objects. But he talks about how, um, uh, well, have you ever walked up to a door that you thought you should push, but it's actually cold?
0: <laughs> Yesterday. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So that's very annoying. And that's not your fault. That's that designer's fault. And what what's, what's missing there is some level of empathy of understanding Why uh, a user of a door or a user of a curriculum or a student would be having a problem. He has this great, uh, this sort of metaphor, I guess, is it, it, well, thinks about a 30 foot plank. Uh, Let's say it's three feet wide and 30 feet long. It's a sturdy piece of wood and you put it on the floor, you ask someone to walk across it, not one problem. Now, if I put that plank still very stiff, three feet wide, 30 feet long, and I put it 10 feet in the air, I ask you to walk across it. You might do that. You might be a little trepidatious. You might look to the sides, but you'll walk across it. Same plank. I take that same thing. I put it 100 feet in the air, and I ask you to walk across it. It's all a whole new ball game, but it's the same plank.
0: Absolutely. I'm not
1: asking you to do anything different. If you think about that as what's going on in a kid's mind when a lesson's being presented, and the lesson is the 30-foot plank that's three yeah. feet wide, yeah. and yeah. some kids yeah. walk right across it, and that same plank, it feels like it's 100 feet in the air.
0: Yeah.
1: And that's, and you're wondering, right? And you're saying to yourself, well, what is it? Is it they're not, they don't have a relationship? We don't know. Well, the bar is fairly low to find out. You just have to ask the kid.
0: That's exactly right. No, you are exactly right, my friend. And we forget about that. I just take the time. If, if, you, if you have a kid, if you have a kid that's not turning in your work, don't assume anything. Sit them down and say, hey, why aren't you turning in the work? Yep. <laughs> Yeah.
1: How's everything going at home, you know, and because a lot of those touch points, maybe prior to school, what happens, you know, did you sleep last night? Did you eat this morning? How was the bus? How did you get to school? Everything went fine? No. Or they turned into ouch points. They were they didn't eat. They didn't sleep well. Um, They're nervous. There was a there's a substitute in math and they weren't very kind to me and I don't get math. Um, You know, there could be spillover effects. Uh, it's, 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 it might not even be you or your lesson or what's going on in your classroom.
0: I would say um, probably in my day, probably 90% of my day is, is, is um, working with behavior. And, I, and I've got to say that is my number one favorite thing to do is to talk with students that are in my office for a write-up or whatever, because that gives me the opportunity, kind of like you're saying, to dig down to the why um i'm a uh, i don't know if you've heard of dr ross green with the he uh, developed the proactive and collaborative solutions approach to behavior um no. i don't um,
1: think i know that works
0: no. he wrote uh he wrote the book the explosive child and lost at school something like that yeah um he talks a lot about that empathizing and then um talking about the unmet needs, unmet skills, that of the behaviors and stuff. But yeah. I see it all kind of in the same realm as what you're talking about. Um, this design thinking, it is essentially, it's it's a very relationship driven way to make a decision.
1: Yeah. And so what's interesting, Ryan, is when we work with schools to advise them on putting together panels of students that they might interview uh, or, or be a part of a design team, um we we always recommend that the students be selected from the edges or yep. as it were so the, the so that you don't go and the, and the knee-jerk reaction i think it's getting better now but you know 10 years ago when, when a superintendent or a principal would have a panel it was all the all the honor students and they say i've got student voice and like well very n- homogenous um, yes but um when you when you have students who are um on the margins Uh, particularly on the other side of the margin, where maybe you have students who uh, you have, you know, children in school who themselves have children. Um, You have uh, those that are not coming to school or they have jobs during the day or at night or they're supporting their other whatever it is that there's just sort of off that uh, typical high end uh, default that sometimes administrators pick. That's where you get the most interesting ideas, because chiefly school isn't working for them. But if you ask them, they will tell you how school could work for them. the interesting thing we found in this story I told you earlier about the large high school with the uh, redesigning the bell, schedule, is that um, there were about five different groups of uh, students who were interviewed by the teams. Five different teams went out, and some did talk to the college-bound kids, some talked to the career-bound kids, others talked to kids who were um, maybe at risk of dropping out. There were some of their own special needs, some vocational, different ones, um, where on a on, if you asked someone sort of typically, like, what did you think those kids really believed, they all believed one thing in common, which is They, they loved their teachers and they wanted to do well in school. It didn't matter who they were or what sort of labels had been put upon them by society. They all wanted that same thing. And I think some people were surprised by that. And that was a common thing that really brought people together to say, well, we can design this together because remember I said at the beginning, design thinking is another term for human centered design. And so when you're able to get enough of sort of the human centeredness around what people are interested in doing and wanting and designed for that, then you tend to bring people together.
0: Love it. Love it. I think, uh, yeah, I really like this because it involves really two things that I love, love, love. Number one is relationships. And number two is big ideas. Um, And and often, and I alluded to this at the beginning, we all have these big ideas. Um, Sometimes we're in environments that kind of, um, stifle those ideas or maybe sometimes we're in an environment that really encourages them um, but the thing that either helps or hurts those ideas is the process of how you go about you know getting to that idea and what I like about yours um, John what's your idea is it's just it's really taking an idea that is used in all kinds of other professions design thinking but then it, it, it puts it into education and it involves something that, in my opinion, is at the core of education and that's the relationship piece. Mm-hmm. So I really appreciate it. Really, really, really appreciate this idea. Um, I'm also reflecting and you're talking about getting the the ideas of those on the fringes. Um, I'm a firm mm-hmm. believer. Kids want kids want to behave and kids want to do well. Um, at the at the at the very very base and if we involve these kids and we ask these kids these their opinion um like you're saying they can throw out some really really good ideas because a lot of those kids they're not going to be yes they're going to tell you the truth
1: no that's right they are and that's what we've seen even in our workshops that we do through next gen we've done them for almost 10 years now um when uh in fact we're always we're always pleasantly surprised it's, it's a kick because usually we have uh high school students but sometimes when we've brought in middle schoolers or even kids as young as fifth grade we've worked with uh sit alongside principals and superintendents to do policy design and those adults are consistently blown away by how um prescient and prudent and and, and yeah. on top of it these um these 10 and 11 year olds are they see everything. We think, you know, you're well, you're a parent. I mean, you're talking about how the walls have ears. It's like, you know, hey, the kids, the kids hear and see everything. You want to know who the best teachers are in the school? They know. They'll tell you. Don't you don't need to do any reviews. Go find out. The worst ones. Go find out. You know, yeah. we're very,
0: you know, yeah, we uh, we're often surprised when those things that we are wanting our children to do, they're already doing them. We just don't take the time to look or listen. Yeah. So. Yeah,
1: so I think there's some neat ideas you can do in my um, shameless promotion department. But I mean, in my book, I talk a little bit about some ways in which uh, leaders can go out and go get that stuff without uh, a lot of heavy lifting. So there's, you can do things like shadow safaris um, where you can just you shadow a kid all day. In fact, I urge every, yeah. every assistant principal and principal to just take a day and shadow a kid. Um, I think you've, you have learned a lot about what's going on in the classroom, what's happening, what's important to kids, what's not important to kids. Um, there's, you can have students interview students, and then they can be a part of a team, and then they feel like they're part of something with the adults. They feel like they're peers. One of the interesting things that we see when schools uh, do this and do it well is that it imbues a sense of optimism in those that are going through it because they start to see traction on problems that have been long-standing and difficult to fix and the, they start to see a light to say oh there's a way out that's that's that can be pretty empowering particularly in in certain uh, uh, school cultures where it's been hard to get
0: people excited. yeah, I'll tell you I'm actually um, this I've got this idea and it's probably what I'm going to do by. Uh, when I decide to do my doctoral, I am um, highly intrigued or, or interested in the, this idea of a hope, what I call the hope coefficient. So it's essentially it's the level of hope contained within a child, um, much like, you know, you can give a child an ACE screener and you can get that type mm-hmm. of. Well, there's there's also a, a level of resilience or a level of hope within each child. Um, And I am extremely, extremely interested in what schools and what teachers and what classrooms can do to increase this hope coefficient. Um, I'm actually I just uh, pitched an elevator pitch to a publishing company and I'm in the process of writing a uh, annotated chapter. Um, I've never written a book. I don't know the first thing about it. But, you know, mm-hmm. I started this podcast and just did it. So I'm going to try this book thing on uh, yeah. hope. And what I what I see, man, is that um, design thinking, and I'm going to start to slow us down here and start to segue out. But what mm-hmm. I'm seeing in my mind is that design thinking does a whole lot of cool things for, for organizations. Um, it is a wonderful way of bringing in the parts to fix something or to 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 find a lasting solution but then what i love that you just said at its core it can help to increase the hope of a child because now they are involved in making a change that maybe they thought was needed all along
1: yeah that they've been we we ask them routinely after we go through some of this either in a school or in our exercises but it's like the how did it feel to talk to an adult like that? Because what the adult has done is said has treated them as an expert.
0: Absolutely. The
1: adults are supposed to suspend all knowledge of what they know about schools and just treat the student as an expert in schooling of their own experience. And they they'll, they'll, yeah, invariably say, um, I never talked to adults like this and it felt like I was heard and it felt really good.
0: Absolutely. I am convinced, um, convinced that we need to put way more psychology into the classroom than we normally are than we presently do. Um, As a former soccer coach, you know, you can teach your kids the skills all day long. But um, if you can't motivate those kids, or if those kids aren't intrinsically motivated, um, their skills don't increase. And so um, I'm going to start to close us down, I want to make sure that you have an opportunity to talk about your your book how can folks get a hold of you um you know because i'm sure somebody out there is is going to be wanting to reach out to john and and ask john maybe to come aboard of of their school system to try to help some stuff uh gain some traction so john tell us uh how folks can get a hold of you and you know what the name of your book is
1: yeah, well, the, they can get a hold of me uh, at my email address is john.nash at uky.edu. Um, you can also follow me on Twitter, that's pretty effective, um, at jnash. Um, and uh, I follow back a lot and we can talk there. In fact, that's how we connected.
0: That's exactly right. I think,
1: uh, and, um, and my book is called Design Thinking in Schools, a Leader's Guide to Collaborating for Improvement. Um, it's out of Harvard Education Press. It's on Amazon. Um, and it's a step-by-step guide for uh, school leaders to think about how they can use some of the field-tested tools that I've been using over the last 10 years to uh, choose a design team, develop prototypes, uh, try out promising uh, things to take action on. And uh, I've got uh, a, lot of, a lot of Kentucky stories, actually, in this book. Um uh, uh, and maybe some folks that people will recognize, but we've, we've tested a lot of this right here in the, in the bluegrass. So, um, yeah, I'd be happy. To, I'm always happy to chat with folks about it if they want to uh, ask more about it. Yeah.
0: Excellent, man. Love it. Love it. Love it. Um, John, I just want to, you know, thank you very much for taking your time and spending it with me to talk about this subject um we started out talking about design thinking and we got to talk about uh the psychology behind it and um how it could be uber effective um by you know leveraging student voice to make some pretty awesome changes within a school and so john thank you very much for being on the big ed idea this evening
1: uh, well ryan thanks it's been an honor it's been a great t- time uh, chatting with you
0: thank you very much And so for my listeners, this has been episode one, season two. Um, And I'm going to leave you like I always do. And that's a quote on dreaming. Um, I've got a special one for you. I actually um, just started reading a brand new book by James Patterson. It's all about John Lennon. Um, And it is John Lennon's last days. And it is phenomenal. If you are um, either a James Patterson Um, reader, or if you're a John Lennon freak like I am, um, it is beautifully written. It's written um, almost like a story, more so a story than a nonfiction piece. And so the quote I'm going to leave you with is one that I have been living my life since, um, probably since about 2003. And it's actually the quote that drew my wife and I together. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. Someday I hope you'll join us and the world will live as one. And so with that, thank you for joining us on the Big Ed Idea Podcast. See you next time. Come to the conversation with your passion, and together, let's build something awesome. Until next time, I'll see you in the funny paper.